Welcome to The Sober Effect, a show that looks at the positives of sobriety, the dangers of alcohol and the many people who are affected by it. I'm Kate. And I'm Steph. The ripple effect of alcohol is far-reaching, and those are the stories you'll hear on The Sober Effect. Episode 22, and today we're going to talk about how drinking progresses. I mean, I know my drinking career looks Mm -hmm. very different to yours, Steph, and I think this is a really unique thing. Some people don't start drinking to their 20s, some start at 13, 14, some hit the bottle hard early, some progress over the course of a decade. It just looks completely different to everyone, and I think that's why this is going to be an interesting conversation. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's a progression for everyone, but the speed is different, right? And that's because everyone's experiences, traumas, things like that, that can accelerate the drinking happen at different times. So yeah, when we start using it for different reasons, it does become a progression. Yeah. I mean, it's funny you say that because I I just thought alcohol was what adults did. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I was enhancing something or I didn't have anything to forget. You know, I was just a young teenager and I'd seen all adults drink. And as soon as I looked old enough to buy alcohol and I just happened to be the tallest of my group of friends, we went in and tried to get a can of beer and then we got 10 and we just went and sat because we thought it was cool, really. And it's it's that simple. We enjoyed the buzz. We felt like grown ups. We thought we were doing something that other people couldn't do yet. And we just sat around in a field smoking and drinking cans of beer. We did have fun, though. I mean, I look back at it and it wasn't exactly exhilarating. And people did get quite sick and they did have accidents and they did sort of end up snogging people they didn't like and all that kind of stuff. But that's what teenagers did all over the UK. Yeah. It's it's all I saw. It's all I knew. And it was almost like that was what was expected of me. No one had a problem with it. I just felt like I was quite chuffed that I managed to get away with being, you know, 18. Do you remember the first time you got drunk? No. You don't? It's really weird. And people have asked me this and I I just don't. And I don't know if it's my memory, if I'm blocking it out. I I, I honestly, I don't know why I can't remember it, but my memory is awful. There are some really big things that have happened in my life that I cannot remember. Do you remember? You probably do. do, don't you? Yeah, I do. Go on, tell us about it. I remember um, I was with a, a friend and her boyfriend. We were 14. We just started freshman year of high school. And there was this little gas station. I grew up in a village. This gas station was known for selling alcohol and cigarettes to, you could be 12. It didn't matter. This old guy, his name was Louie. I mean, he was like the Crip Creeper, like he was super wrinkly and he just chain smoked cigarettes and he just sat in his little gas station here in the US. Like you can buy like 30 beers in like a box or 24 or 12 in boxes. That's like how it's packaged. But he sold like six packs with the little plastic things. And then he would get a pallet type box and then he would just multiply the six packs and put them in a pallet. It was just really bizarre. But hey, it was beer and we could buy it. Yeah. So that's what we did. We went and got a pallet of beer. And I remember I, I I don't recall having to have very many because um, I was extremely string bean skinny and first time drinking. I think I maybe had maybe two at most. And I just remember that feeling hitting me for the first time and thinking, oh, my God, 
this is amazing. Like I felt like I was floating. I felt confidence I never felt before. I felt like I could just do whatever I wanted. And it's actually scary when you look back at it because we already at 14 have this sense of like, we can do whatever and we're, you know. And then to add that. So alcohol, dangerous. It's so dangerous. It's so dangerous. But I just remember I I went to bed and I remember I just kept like, I would sit up and then I'd fall back into my bed and just start laughing because it just felt so weird. And then I'd sit back up and do it again. And my friend is trying to get me to bed. And she's like, your parents are going to be home soon because my parents were out drinking. And so we we had the the yeah, little, yeah. you know, drinking session at my house. Oh, you no were at your house. Around. Okay. Yeah, there was no parents around. And um, I just remember her and her boyfriend trying to get me to settle down to go to bed. And I just kept popping back up like a little like jack in the box. Like I'd pop back up and I'd be laughing. Where did you put the cans? I think I think we just, you know, threw them in a garbage bag and put them in her boyfriend's trunk and he just got rid of them. Yeah, I mean, we were really good about cleaning up. Like my parents, like still to this day, when I decided to get sober and I had this platform and I talk about how I started drinking when I was 14, my mom was like, I had no idea. And I'm like, how? Like we would drink at the house all the time. Like yeah. I know I was. I mean, I know we tried to cover things up, but come on. But were they drinking so much that they didn't mm-hmm. notice? Maybe. I don't feel like my like my parents would go out on the weekends with friends, and like they would go to bars and they would do karaoke, and then they would come home late. But I don't ever recall like seeing my mom or my dad having to help the other one in the house or stumbling around or getting sick. I think I do remember my dad would sometimes come home with the hiccups and his thing to get rid of hiccups is to drink water upside down. So he'd be in the sink with his head upside down. And then I I would be like, oh, dad must have, you know, drank too much tonight. But nothing ever like dramatic. They didn't fight. They didn't come home and fight. Like I just never saw a really bad side of alcohol. You know what I mean? So I just thought, oh, this is what you do for fun. And then when I experienced it, I'm like, yeah, this is kind of fun. I do remember going downstairs when I was little. I'm talking Mm -hmm. under 10 in the morning. And I walked into our living room and there was a homeless guy sleeping on our sofa. And basically my parents had gone to an embassy party at the American embassy and they'd come out absolutely wasted. And there was a homeless guy on the steps begging and they basically brought him home in the taxi and said, come and sleep at ours and have a shower and have some food. Now, bearing in mind, they had four little children under the age of 10 upstairs asleep. That's really dangerous. And then they went to bed. So this guy who they didn't know was sleeping in a house, four children upstairs, parents passed out. You know, luckily nothing bad happened. He didn't attack us and didn't steal anything, but he was really angry in the morning when they came down sober or hung over and kind of wanted to get him out. And we're just like, oh, he's just a friend, you know, um, well, well, he just needs to leave now. And they kind of gave him some money and pushed him out. And I just remember thinking, that's really weird. But I do remember thinking they were drunk. So the fact I even knew that at that age, at six or seven or whatever I was, I remember the noise levels. We used to have so many parties, you know. We had so many cool friends growing up. And and I've mentioned before that my dad was a publisher. So we had like Roald Dahl and Quentin Blake and Doris Lessing and Salman Rushdie and all these incredible people. And and Dervla Murphy, who's this amazing Irish woman who's written loads of books, who would sit there and tell us stories about, you know, traveling across countries and getting hit by a bull and breaking her back and get, and we would sit there transfixed, but the alcohol would be everywhere. All these amazing people milling around and the noise would get louder. Then the music would come on. They'd be smoking. 
and we knew we could get away with stuff. We'd weave in and out of these adults' legs, you know, and there'd be 50 or 60 people in our house. It didn't ever scare me, but I remember thinking it's a bit out of control. Adults get a bit out of control when they drink. And I remember the liquor cabinet that we had, all the different colors in there and thinking that stuff looks so cool and it makes people act really weird. And I didn't have an idea of what drugs were, but everyone did it. When we went out for pizza, they bring wine to all the adults. So it's, it was almost like a, a rite of passage. This is what you do when you're an adult. And everyone seems to have fun because I wasn't there when the arguments broke out or the vomiting happened. So growing up, that's what I thought alcohol was. And I don't remember the first time I got drunk. I think, I, I mean, I was given sips of wine here and there as a kid, you know, as a treat, which is just, mm-hmm. you know, so problematic really, isn't it? But they didn't know what they were doing. But really they should. You can see the effects alcohol have on you. Even back then, even 100 years ago, you know what happens and giving it to a child. But people used to give alcohol to babies to make them sleep. Mm-hmm. I had a pediatrician tell me when I was breastfeeding to drink whiskey or wine before I went on a flight and breastfeed so the baby would sleep through the flight. So basically, you're telling me to drug my child, my newborn. I mean, yeah. alcohol has changed a lot. And, and I think it's rapidly becoming clear that it, it's really dangerous for you. And it's happening quite quickly, I feel. Mm-hmm. And I know we're not here to talk about the kind of history of alcohol, we're, we're kind of talking about the timeline within our drinking careers. But I think when I started, I thought this is something that everyone's going to do. Mm-hmm. I'm young. As soon as I'm old enough, I'm on it. And that's basically what happened. I don't remember it because I don't think it was particularly special. I was just like, finally. And then I just carried on drinking. It just happened. Yeah. 30 years. Yeah. It, it just slowly inserted itself into your life. Like, Seamlessly. It wasn't even slowly. I drank, yeah, but quickly. I mean, it was like a seamless thing. Oh, yeah, like you said, yeah. you didn't. You don't have a profound moment of like this was the first time I drank. No, it just absolutely not. I remember smoking. I remember stealing my mum smoked Marlboro Reds, and Ooh. I remember stealing one on my own. And I went down the street and I sat in between two cars and I lit it and nearly like coughed up my entire body and was like, "This is disgusting." I remember that so clearly, sitting on that curb. But drinking, no. It's so funny, the smoking thing, because I remember as well, I started smoking around the same time I started drinking, but it was because I came from such a small school and then I fed into a big high school. So it was super scary and I really wanted to fit in. And I just remember everyone was smoking and I thought, that's what I need to be doing. And so I remember my dad smoked, but he was a closet smoker. So he never smoked in front of the family, but we all knew he did because he smelled like it. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. But we knew where he hid his cigarettes in the garage. So I would get home from school way before my parents would get home from work. And I would go into the garage and I would practice smoking because I made up my mind. If I'm going to be a smoker, I'm going to know what I'm doing. I don't want to be hacking and looking like a fool in front of everybody. I want people (laughs) to think I've been doing this for years. It's exactly the same. And I thought if I get caught, she won't say it because she pretends she doesn't smoke. So right. what's she going to say? Exactly. Who's stolen my, my dad. Yes. We used to hide his cigarettes. No, this is funny. We used to hide his cigarettes when they were out partying. Me and my brother would be bored. And this was when we were a little bit younger. This was before we were teenage, or I was like a teenager. But we would hide them in the garage in different places. And then we'd wait for him to get home because we knew he'd be out all night and he'd want to have a cigarette. And then we would just listen for him to be like, 
so irritated, but he can't tell anybody why he's yeah, annoyed. Yeah. The, the small things in life. But actually, they you know, they were lying. We knew it. You, right. There aren't many wins you get as a kid over your parents. Exactly. Let's be honest. You've got to really appreciate those ones. But yeah, it was, for me, it was like that. We drank whatever we could get our hands on. And I just drank loads. I was always up for drinking. Mm-hmm. I'd drink whatever I could. I remember my parents sort of saying, oh, you're drunk again. I remember my mum pushing me into the bathroom once because she was kind of like, you're drunk. And and I remember just going in and then just like, oh, I'll just have a nap and like locking the door. I think it was, there was so much going on. I was from such a big family. There were always people there. It was so easy to lose track of what was happening. It was just easy to get away yeah. with things. And they were socializing all the time. Yes. I definitely grew up around a lot of alcohol without a doubt. Yeah. Your childhood reminds me of like what my daughter would probably describe her childhood as. So it's like even more of of a reason for me to be like, I'm glad I stopped when I did because you don't want her to turn out like me. I don't want her to turn out like Kate. (laughs) (laughs) Wise decision. But listening to you now as an adult and and it's like these these are like core memories that you have that are ingrained into you and they're ingrained in my daughter as well. But now I'm hoping that she now has a contrast and sees a difference of like, actually things are now better that my parents don't have people over every single weekend, sometimes Wednesday, Thursday nights as well. And there's just drunk people around Mm. me all the time. I think you've said before that Adeline used to love the parties. And actually when you stopped drinking, she was sad and worried. It's changed, has it? Like what? Mm-hmm. She just never knew what the alternative was. She didn't. I think she loves it more. She gets so much more of my undivided attention. And I think there was a part of her that didn't realize how much she wanted that until she had it. Yeah. She never knew any different. She never knew what a weekend with just peace and quiet where you could nope. read or just go, what should we do? Because it was always preparing for a party or recovering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what weekends were. And actually, that's not what weekends should be. So we we do actually have a guest on today. We're going to just yeah. chatter through the hour, aren't we? So, and I think we're, we're going to speak to Des, who's a designer. He's an artist. He's a DJ. He's got his own radio show. He's a bit of an all-rounder. Um, and I've known Des actually for quite a while. And I knew him when we were both drinkers. We used to work together. And we were talking to him because we wanted a different perspective on this, didn't we, Steph? We kind of asked him to start with the difference he thinks between men and women and the drinking culture and not only history, but how it progresses and how it progressed for him and where he is now. So let's meet him. You know, certainly that time in the 90s, you know, Ladette culture was massive. So I I don't know at that point whether there was much of a difference in the UK. And maybe this is UK and and city specific. But I don't know that there was a lot of difference. I mean, prior to that, certainly, if you think about kind of lad culture and the 80s and prior to that, running into that, drinking was always seen to be very, very masculine. You know, it, it was something that blokes did. You know, I don't remember my mum drinking very much and and, you know in the UK certainly like you had Sunday laws and stuff like that so I mean if I think back as a child like up until 10 I probably wasn't aware of alcohol and then you know like we would go to the pub on very special occasions like people didn't have money and it's really interesting when you start to think about 
you join the dots of you know what the world is like today there was only pubs that you could go to or social clubs they could only operate within certain hours you couldn't buy alcohol in shops it was kind of like the mid 80s that off licenses where you could have offline sales like out of premises and even then people didn't have necessarily have money to go and buy booze and take it home and drink it so I, I think people's drinking was relatively compressed in terms of availability, certainly, but also like how much money you had. So, you know, you'd go to the pub and you might have a fiver. And for some people, they would go there and nurse a pint. That was kind of what blokes did, go and spend time with blokes. It then kind of progressed to sort of like after football on Saturday, you'd go to the pub and then it would kind of be boys would go and chat up girls and, and you know, then maybe have a fight. And then, and then maybe have a kebab and then recover, <laughs> uh, you know, like that, that was the eighties. It was quite a bloke's thing. But then, you know, by the time we were in our mid twenties, certainly like, you know, girls were bringing me up to go out for drink. Like we're all going out kind of thing. There were posses of girls, you know, the blokes went and, uh, and earned the money. And actually you only really started to notice. And, and this is like, you know, my parents' generation. But you only really started to notice that that someone might have had a problem with with alcohol because they were spending their housekeeping down the pub, you know. And then that would be the the barneys between you know the the marital disputes would be about someone's always down the pub spending the money or gambling or something. And 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 you know, but they were extremes, you know. Th there wasn't the way that you can now hide hide stuff so much. I mean, even if I think. I gave up drinking alcohol last May and I, I never had a problem with drinking alcohol because there was always an opportunity. There was always a situation. You know, you'd take me out of the street and put me put me on a on a park bench drinking a bottle of wine at seven o'clock on a Monday night. And that is very different to me in Coglinos, you know, having aperitifs and then wine with food and then cigars and whiskey. You know, you know, one looks really sophisticated and the other other one that's completely derelict but, but going through that sort of like that journey through drinking and how those things change I, I don't know it's just by the time I reached my 20s it was there, there wasn't it wasn't gender specific by any means I found alcohol quite late you know I wasn't a down the park drinker um, I wasn't drinking Thunderbird or anything like that and even when I was in my teens I, I was interested, re genuinely interested in the social aspect. I was interested in being seen in the clothes that I wore. That's what I was interested in. I wasn't interested in drinking. I was interested in going out, socialising and meeting people. But, you know, I don't know. Do you remember, like, I could never drink a pint. But I found a pint a lot. And I, I've always been sort of six foot, like, you know, since mid-teens. Like, drinking a pint was a lot. So I'd be socialising. My other mates that weren't so good at conversing with girls or, you know, got bored about sports chat, they were there necking the pints because they had nothing else to do. And like, they're like, you know, it's your round, Des. It's, you know, and I'd be like, you know, a quarter of the way through some. But then you train yourself. This is the, the thing that I found interesting is you train yourself to be able to drink volumes because there's some credence given to being able to drink volumes. Not only just the amount, but also then being able to handle yourself and not fall out. You know, there, there's a gauntlet raised there. That's after even, I guess, when you've got over how horrible alcohol tastes. So you train yourself to drink this stuff, like, you know, both in terms of palate and in terms of volume. 
And, and then before you know it, you're kind of, you're in the habit. For me, uh, my journey and experience, there is a clear difference between habit and addiction. Like I, I as a personality type, I'm very habitual. Unfortunately, I find the bad habits very easy to, to pick up and the good habits I don't find as easy. But I can master them as long as I'm consistent. That's just about self-awareness. But yeah, so so for me, it was it's a habit. It is not not an addiction. I know there's lots of different opinions around that and, you know, it works differently for others. But I was definitely in the habit. And then you kind of train yourself and then, and then how does that lead? So, so yeah, okay, that's Friday and Saturday night. And then that becomes... Sunday afternoon and then that becomes Thursday Friday Saturday Sunday afternoon and then because you're busy going to the pub Thursday Friday Saturday and maybe Sunday and you want to meet up with someone that only leaves you Monday Tuesday and Wednesday when you meet up with them which probably involves drinking so you're on sort of like five of the seven days and then you're probably having at some point or another you probably get to a point where you know, it feels all very sophisticated to have wine with dinner. But, well, you know, that you might start by leaving some wine for tomorrow. And then you realise tomorrow it doesn't taste so nice. So you forget that idea and you drink all of that bottle from then on. And then that and then that becomes your, you know, so it's it's really interesting how subtle, and this is how it worked with me, is how subtle it became so important in your life. And then, you know, as a parent, you know, all of a sudden you then have children and, and you're you're living in a hamlet. And there's nothing to do. And it's like, well, you know, I've got a good job. We'll treat ourselves. This is very like Gigi, you know, this is all bougie, like nice. And then, you you know, you're drinking wine every night. By sort of like, when was it? Uh, you know, 2005, we're probably only looking 15 years ago, 20 years ago. That smoking ban combined with cheap alcohol available at supermarkets people stopped going out come round, you know and for the price of a pint and, and this is today like you know you could go in a supermarket and i could buy a pack of 10 stellas for 10 quid or i could go to the pub and i could drink two pints it's a no-brainer and, and, and as part of your weekly shop you scoop up your beer your wine whatever it all looks fine they don't know you're going to drink that case of 10 tonight it's just so accessible think- isn't it I mean, it's massively accessible. I I think in terms of sort of my experience with drinking with the lads, once I'd had a family, yeah, I mean, whenever I met my friends, it was always about us getting smashed. But by that time, we'd had enough practice to be able to drink consistently throughout the afternoon without getting a bit more than giggling. And then you start thinking, right, okay, I mean, like like the weekend that I gave up drinking, I I planned the day that I was going to give up. I was going to give up on that bank holiday. There's a course of events that led to it. I was prepared. On the Saturday, we were celebrating a, a friend's milestone birthday where there was just as much drink as you wanted. And honestly, you know, I must have had five pints and it just didn't touch the sides. So I had another five and it kind of started to move. So I had a bottle of red wine, you know, and we're probably at about four o'clock in the afternoon by now. And then, you know, there was three cases of gin. So it was like, OK, well, we're looking to that. The, the worst thing was, you know, and, and this was probably like a big, a grand send off for me, if you like. I got home and I drank more beer and I drank another bottle of wine. And I didn't feel too rough the next day. And you're kind of like, well, I should be in for a kick in. Like, I, you know, this should be the trampoline that's going to bounce me off where I never want to <laughs> do it again. But, you know, it wasn't. If anything, it was the opposite. But also it was a bit of a stark realisation of, 
of how you build this tolerance up. And as part of that, when I was telling my friends that I was giving up alcohol, these are intelligent guys that run businesses. It's like, well, I can do that. You know, you are you all right? You know, you're playing for the other team now. You know, all sorts of kind of derogatory comments out of guys I've known for a very, very long time. And, and it's all playful. That's what's interesting to me about the male psyche, because... My husband still drinks and we've had conversations and I don't ever pressure him or tell him that he needs to stop drinking. But I feel like the fact that I'm sober, he sometimes feels like that's where the conversation's going when we have conversations about things. Things he has said to me is like, I can't just not drink. Like he, he, it's part of who he is, right? He's like, I have to do these work events. I can't just go and not drink. Like that's what everyone's doing. And did you ever feel caught up in that? Did you ever feel like... Yeah, massively. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? You know, I'm quite sociable, but I don't like the pretense of business, which is a bit strange because I've mostly spent a lot of my career in marketing. So, you know, that's quite a pretentious area. So your glass of wine will get you through it. But... And I think if everyone's honest, you know, in those kind of situations, everyone's filling a gap. Um, And I was never disparaging if anyone else didn't want to drink. You know, it was like, fine. You know, what I have found is in terms of team building and stuff like that, it becomes boring when you're going to work events and you, you, you might spend a couple of days doing workshops and stuff like that. And then you go out for dinner. One of the first questions is red or white, you know, or, you know, we go to the pub beforehand. And I think that's where, like, you get caught up in those things. I'm not easily led. That's not to say that I don't go with the oi polloi or the status quo, but like, you know, I, I make my own choices and decisions and I'm quite stubborn. So to kind of dig deep into that characteristic of myself as to why I'm not doing it. And I think also you need a bit of a boilerplate. You, you need a bit of a kind of an answer to why. And that becomes difficult. So, you know, what well, was your well, answer? Well, I stopped drinking to anyone that does, you know, doesn't know me from, from before. It's just got to a point. I hit 50 this year. I'm looking at longevity. I've got young kids. It's going to be a challenge the next five years to, to have. I want to be present. It's as simple as that. It's, you know, I put it forward as a lifestyle choice. So they don't need to know that, you know, I, I could drink a bottle of red wine on a Monday night, still get up and perform in role and do everything that a, a partner, a parent, an employee needs to do. They just need to know that that's just my choice. That I've just chosen not to from a lifestyle choice. And if anyone wants to, like, kind of then come at me with any sort of ignorant, I, I, I'll leave it there. You know, I say, okay, so you don't think I'm a real man because I'm not drinking five pints and trying to pull some barmaid that's not interested or, or start a fight with the bloke at the taxi rate. I'm cool with that. I think it's that. It's like, how determined are you? And I, and I think that's where I you know, mentioned earlier about it's not about addiction. It might be for some and have it for me and, and others. It, it's around choice. And I've really, over the last year, at times had to hold on to that realization of it's my choice there is all that stuff around the masculinity i mean like you know and and also meeting up with people we we just moved from a inland village to a coastal town and we've got to start new you know whether it's meeting other parents of our children's friends and just in every situation you know alcohol is the perfect product to market because it's just Oh, you feel sad. I oh, have a drink. Oh, great. Let's celebrate. You know, let's have a drink. It's, it's everything. Oh, I'm slightly uncomfortable. Have a drink. You'll be all right. Um, you know, it, whatever it is, 
I've got nothing to do. Have a drink. Just there. That's been challenging. That's been probably been more challenging for me is, is wanting to make new connections. And, and I'm like, well, let's go for a walk along the beach. And they're like, you're obviously new around here. <laughs> yeah. Or, or like, you know, well, we live in a fantastic place, you know, between the South Downs and the South Coast, you know, right, you know, five minutes either way. So, so let's go for a walk. No, let's go for a walk. We can chat. We can get some exercise in, you know, whatever. We can be away. No one can hear us. We can talk what we like, Ran. I'm going down there for a pint. Yeah. But people feel comfortable drinking, don't they? And when you meet someone for the first time, to suggest, like, let's say you met a guy. If you said, let's go for a drink, that naturally feels okay. It feels comfortable to everyone. And you know that you're going to have this alcohol that's going to make it easier. That's the focus. But when that's gone... How are you making new friends? If you ask someone, oh, well, let's go for what? People are going to instantly feel uncomfortable because it's almost like taking the new relationship a step too far, too quickly. Really <laughs> interesting point, Kate. That's like, what do you mean? That means we're already best friends if right. we're going to go and do like boring shit together. Yeah, <laughs> you exactly. know, like how deep have we got to be in this before, you know, <laughs> like is that, is going for a walk the third date these days? A walk is you very know? intimate. Or, it's very or, intimate. Or, you know, home run. <laughs> Christ. Yeah. There are things that not being hungover have, have done for me that have been massive benefits, right? Okay, first of all, recognizing that you were hungover all those times. So I have managed to do well with my career, you know, and as I've said, you know, maintain the parental role and the partner role and everything. But, you know, every, everyone's happy. There was no bad reason why I should give up alcohol. Everything was fine, I'm functioning perfectly. But then you don't realise the amount of effort that it takes to perform consistently at a decent level when you're hungover, right? And for you to, like, package down that. So how much of your potential are you simply using in squashing down the fact and hiding to some degree that you're hungover? And had you not used that effort to suppress down the fact that you were anxious, hungover and everything else what could you have done with that amount of output like that's that that's a real thing that I look back at and I think uh, all the times I couldn't be bothered if I didn't have that where could I have got to there, there's those bits that you look back and you think I could have done more so where I am now is where are my interests where are my passion where am I going to get joy for and and who are the people that are in those areas? And so, like music, you know, I've got back into DJing after like, you know, 10, 20 year hiatus. I've got my own record show that I've I've had for a year. It's given me those things. So so actually I'm I'm able to go and talk to people about music or to be going to those environments. And and I can go to a club environment, and I have done, and and not drink. And and I'll drive, and that kind of excuses any of the, the conversation. The reality of that, though, it's not long with your friends that you know of years or, or, or new ones that you're you're trying to forge friendships with. Um, it gets fucking boring. I'll, I'll call it what it is. You get It's boring. So, like, you know, by their third pint, and they've said the same thing twice, you, you just kind of, with, with people that you've known for many years and you run out of conversation because actually it's the alcohol that's the glue that's holding it all together, that feels like, you know, quite a shame. And then likewise with new people. So I think, so I've just kind of like, it's a bit of a, what do they call it? It's like Saturn's return, right? Is when then all the planets align and, and this is a time in men's life where they, they look back and they wonder how they got where they were. 
you kind of do that sort of level of reflection to then look forward and, and look at where you want to go and what, and what you want to do. And so, so I'm just choosing that landscape and being much more patient with it as well. But also you've got to walk into those environments and be aware of what you're getting yourself into. And I've done a lot of research in that in terms of there are, you know, very high profile musicians and people within the arts generally that are, have gone sober. I don't know whether it's just my exposure to stuff now or awareness, but it seems to be quite a trend. So my question is, and not not to categorise men are from Mars and women are from Venus and all that, but women do tend to talk more about their emotions and their feelings. And that may not be true of you, but it certainly is of me and my husband. But women seem to be a lot more like that. And when it comes to sobriety, I definitely reached out to communities and I joined a 100-day challenge where I was put in a group and there was kind of uproar when a man joined it because people said, well, is everyone okay with this before I let him into the WhatsApp group? Because we won't be able to talk about periods or we won't be able to talk about hormones. or And it was kind of like, I don't care. It's probably good to have a man in here. But it did identify the fact that there are there are two different ways of approaching it. One is very much on your own and one is to talk about it and get support. Where did you go? So when you decided to stop, did you have a support network around you of other men that you spoke to? Was it other women? Did you do it completely on your own? You know, how did you do that? Because I think that will be a bit of a difference, but maybe I'm wrong. I can remember turning around to a friend and going, I think I've got a bit of a drinking problem. I think I'm drinking too much. And I remember them saying, like, no, you just like a drink, it's fine. Like, and then and then I probably, after a period of time, every now and again, I would think, oh, my tolerance has notched up. I should, like, cut this down or whatever. But I never would. I was always subconsciously thinking, this can't be good for me, you know? Like, the fact that I can drink, drink half a bottle of Jack Daniels and not fall over, probably not the best accolade. And so I think there's probably always been that questioning there. And, and then I did dry January. I think with, with me and my partner, we, we got to a point where we were like, this is getting just a bit a bit boring now. This just seems to be like just what we do, right? Like we're not having really deep conversation. It wasn't creating anything negative, but it wasn't making anything positive either. And, and then it was just an expense, frankly. And so I, I thought, well, I'm just going to do dry January. And that was harder than I thought. So I thought, right, I'd have a good Christmas and New Year, and then I'll batten down the hatches. And like I said to, to my partner, I said, look, I'm doing this join me if you like i don't care if you do don't you know that's fine with individuals but i'm doing this and what that might mean is i go to bed at eight o'clock it might mean i'm grumpy for no reason at all but this will be the reason it might mean that i'm rude and i storm out of the house Uh, and all of those things happen the fact that i communicated that ahead of time probably set me in good stead and i got forgiven but the fact that it was harder than i thought it would be birthday is in january as well so so that was that was a hurdle right it would have been my 49th birthday then everyone's like what are you doing for your birthday we're we going out what are we doing no no i'm not doing anything i'm not doing anything for yeah there, there was just a, a number a, a course of events where i knew people that had become unwell i lost my father and and I and I leaned into the bottle because I knew I could, like I knew I could just. It was all. It almost gave me an excuse. But also at the same time, I realised how much it was taken from me because I was having to help my mother sort out all of the arrangements. In terms of support, I think I was already looking around at other people that had done something, 
like people that I, I enjoyed, whether they were artists, musicians, DJs, wh whatever they were, I saw that there was a lot of cool people. It's really interesting, right? I'm not a massive hip-hop fan. I certainly was golden era hip-hop and stuff like that. Um, but 50 Cent, right, who's this massive gangster, you know, everyone sees him as that. He doesn't drink and he doesn't smoke. Uh, and now I'm using that with my son and going, that is gangster. And look how much money he's got and how well he's done. So, you know, it's kind of like turning that street thing into a better message. I, I did look around. Like, so So I lived uh, west of Brighton and I thought there must be loads of, like, so I spoke to my partner. I said, like, I might need some help with this, having done dry January and it not being that comfortable. I might need some help with this. So I looked around to see what was available. And it was like down the road, some scratchy place that you'd go to if you're a heroin addict every Thursday. And I was like, that's not where I'm at. If you unpeel us, we're probably not a million miles from each other. But actually, that that's not where I'm, I'm at. And so I decided to go alone. But I was I was absolutely willing to get involved in any kind of scheme or anything like that that was that was going to um, support me. And then I just doubled down and used my own self discipline to get me through it. And with that, it's that constant reminder of it's your own choice. It's your own choice. If you want to, you can. But also, it's that honest recognition of I can go and have a pint. I can go and have two. But then I'll have another five. And then I'll drink a bottle of red wine. And no, I won't have an argument with anyone and I won't smash anything up. And, and like, you know, I'll go to bed before 11. It's a great enabler, alcohol. You realise that with friends that I've had for decades, unfortunately, you only ever really meet. Unless you're all into particular activities. And, and, and this was the case when we were younger. You know, we were into um, mountain biking or football or, or a bit of running. But then life gets kind of full up and you're you're doing those kind of activities on your own. And then you realise that, you know, maybe for the last 10 years, the only time you met was around booze. You know, you're not having any kind of critical discourse. You're not talking about current affairs or arts or anything like, you know, that kind of stimulating. It's, you just end up getting pissed and that, that unfortunately gets boring no matter how well you know people. And then you become boring as well. So you feel a bit of an outcast because, you know, four pint, five pints in, you're you're not in that joke about putting a chip on someone's shoulder. It, you know, whatever those things are, you, you're just not a part of those jokes. And then for new friends, like you're kind of choosing when to see them. So you've got less scope. So no one wants to go for a coffee at eight o'clock on a Friday, <laughs> you know. And frankly, I don't necessarily want to go for a beer at eight o'clock on a Friday, even if I'm just going to have a soda and lime. I'm like, you know, and, and then you've got the whole lifestyle change so one of the things that i've done and using my time better i go to the gym three times a week or do circuit training three times a week at half five so that's like moved my day down by a couple of hours so you know nine o'clock on a friday is 11 is what used to be 11 o'clock so i'm like i'm ready to go to bed So I really resonate with a lot of what he was saying, surprisingly. Like, I feel like sometimes when you talk to a guy, you you think it's going to be drastically different. And I think there are some specs of it that are. But the core of it is always the same. You know, we all started out innocently enough, socializing, doing it to be cool. It wasn't ever part of our plan for it to become an unhealthy and as he called it a habit. He started off not even liking beer. I was never in that situation. I always liked it or tolerated it, I guess. I can't say I loved it. 
but I never sort of remember thinking I don't like it. But the fact he didn't even like it to begin with, that's what happens. You build up a tolerance to this stuff. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, before you know it, you're drinking a bottle of wine and you're not feeling drunk at all. And that happens over the course of decades often. But it's so important to recognize that that is happening because it's really scary when you suddenly remember how things used to be and you realize how quickly they've progressed. And I think it does catch up. I think it does get quicker when you're stressed. You double your kind of amount you're going to drink that night. If you've had a really bad day, you'll down the first glass of wine, in my case, in five minutes and pour the second one. You know, you start using alcohol because it's become a friend. It's become a reliable way to slow down, to wind down, to shut your brain off. Although we know it doesn't do that, does it? Yeah. Sometimes I do wonder how much damage it's done too, but that's for a whole nother podcast. <laughs> what to your brain? Yes. Honestly. I know it's I mean, scary. it's going on two years. I, I had a lapse of memory just the other day and it was really scary. Like it was like really weird. But anyway, I do remember this. This is funny because you're like, you don't even remember the first time you drank. I remember the first time I drank. I also remember the second time I drank. You're laughing. This is it's well because <laughs> for a cup of tea. Well, because it is in alignment with the progression or like the amount and the tolerance. How quickly it just you know starts building because, like I said, the first time I think maybe I had two. The next time I remember I had like four or five. And thinking, ooh, oh, that is a big step. I'm like, ooh, I can hang. Because wow. it was just like, all right, I've done this once. Like, let's chase it. Like, let's push it a little bit farther. Like, if I felt like this, this was my thought. If yeah, I felt like that it. after one or two, imagine yeah. what I would feel like if I could push it to four or five. And I remember yeah. going to a house party and really pushing that and thinking I made it. Like, that's so sad to say, but thinking like, okay, I can hang with all these people who party every weekend and drink. I can keep up because that's just what you do, right? You just try to keep up. It's such a misconception. Like, we don't eat a hamburger and go, that was delicious. Imagine if I could eat 10. But the difference is, Kate, Nothing's as good as the first glass ever, is it? Right. But but what we do know now is the hamburger doesn't have an effect on on the frontal part of your brain. It does something to our brain that we no longer can make logical decisions. Even though we think we're in control, we really do. But we we aren't. We can't make any logical decisions. We just, the brain wants more. So we give it more. I'd love to know, like, how much of my drinking was to do with, like, was I addicted to alcohol? How much was to do with me just wanting it because I wanted that feeling of it? But again, is that addiction? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I could have a day off and I it didn't kill me. I didn't shake or start to get really, you know, oh, mm-hmm. God, I really need a drink. I would just have, I could have a day off. So I always used to say, well, I'm not physically dependent on it, but mentally it would drive me mad. But, you know, how much of that was addiction? How much, what, when I had that first class, I could never stop. Never. I would be so much angrier if I had one glass and there was no alcohol than if I had none. I would get, I would literally, I remember walking halfway across Brooklyn to try and find a McDonald's and a shop that would sell me some more wine because I'd been out. I'd got home and I didn't want to go to bed. And I was like, I'm on a mission. I had friends visiting from the UK. I was like, let's go. And actually, it was so stupid. I didn't get anything. You know, and I was out for about two hours wandering really dangerous parts of the city. Mm -hmm. But I was like, I will not give up. I really want this. I really want it. And 
what makes someone become like that? Well, alcohol does, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I don't think I was ever, I think towards the end, I noticed that there was a physical addiction starting to happen because I was using alcohol to not be hungover. And to me, that's like the definition of addiction, right? Like if you have to, yeah, like, yeah, I mean, that's what, you know, heroin addicts do. Like they get dope sick if they can't shoot up again, you know, and I related to that because I remember there was a time where my binge drinking was getting so bad that my hangovers, I would wake up still drunk. That's how drunk I was getting. So when I would wake up still drunk, like I knew I was at like a crossroads. I knew there was a heavy, heavy hangover coming, or I could just continue on. And I would. But didn't that get you into an absolute state? I, I, that's never happened to me. You have to at some point, right? You're going to have to Mm. stop at some point, or that's where I was at. Like, okay, how many days am I going to do this? Because if I continue to keep doing this every day, I do have a physical addiction. So then I would let myself have that horrible hangover, give myself a few days to dry out. And as soon as I felt better, back to drink. And so was I physically addicted? I think I was really riding that line. I was really, really riding that line at the end. And I'm so glad that I quit when I did because I really think it was starting to tip to that point with me. But before that, it was definitely mental. It was all because of my anxiety was so bad. And I was using it to calm that, which was really just making it worse. So I I think, you know, he mentions he thought for him, it was more of a habit than an addiction. I think for me, it was definitely habit for a really long time. But at the end, I think I was starting to be more physically addicted. And when I stopped, I had a really bad three or four nights sleep where I was really sweaty and I Mm -hmm. couldn't sleep. And that was the alcohol leaving my body. You know, it wasn't really bad. Um, And I just did it alone. You know, I didn't get any medication. I didn't join AA. I didn't, and I still don't call myself an alcoholic. I didn't go to the doctor. I just decided to stop and I stopped. But I do remember having really bad sleep and thinking, this Mm -hmm. is really unfair. I'm not drinking and I'm not sleeping, which is making me tired, which of course, as we know, makes you more likely to relapse if you're tired or hungry. But I mean, that's it. That shows I was you know, my body was used to it. I'd been drinking pretty much every day for nearly 30 years. So that's, that's a lot of alcohol and also the sugar cravings. There's another indication because I suddenly just needed sugar. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm sure I've got some form of diabetes or something. My blood sugar has been all over the place Mm -hmm. since I stopped. It's such a sad story and it's such a common thread that runs through all of my adult life. And I look back and I do have lovely memories of, you know, I've I've had a wonderful life and a really exciting life and I've made incredible friends and I've got a lovely family and I've been really lucky. But there are so many points in that story where the road nearly got so dark, mostly to do with physical accidents because I was drunk. You know, I was a walking calamity and I very nearly died lots of times. It terrifies me. But yeah, the progression, when you step back and look at it over the course of 20 or 30 years, it's so sad because it's just so encouraged everywhere, isn't it? Yeah. Do you feel like yours was a slow progression or do you feel like there was any points in those 20 to 30 years that like accelerated things like did you have anything happen where you're like this phase is no was a turning point no I just think I've always drunk and actually I've always been really worried about 
when I, I've never had someone very close to me die. And I'm mm. I'm really nervous about that happening in sobriety yeah. because I think if anything's going to tip me over the edge, it will be that. Because no, nothing really traumatic has ever happened to me that made me excel my drinking. I've just always been a big drinker. I can't get enough. I drink quickly, loved it. Didn't matter what happened to me. I went back again and again. It was part of who I was, part of my identity. And that was it. And I'll deal with the consequences. When I was 26, I mar- I've, I've been married for two years. My parents got divorced. And it was a huge turning point in my drinking. I mean, I can tell you that's when it shifted. And Mm. there was a lot going on at the time. Blake and I were trying to get pregnant. We were building a new house. And like literally Blake was building the house. My parents dropped this bomb that they're getting divorced. Stress was full on. I mean, that was the biggest stressful moment of my life. And I was 26 and I probably wasn't built to handle a lot of the things that I instantly was thrown into. And so we had some new neighbors across the street from the house we were building and they would come over and they were always drinking and it would be like during the week. And I'm like, you can drink during like people drink during the week. And so we'd get done working on the house and they're like, here, let's have some beers and chat and socialize. And I was so, and I was like basically therapy with them, you know, like this is what's going on with my parents and this is, and the drinking was happening at the same time. And it just really like got a hold of me. And I just, from then on out, that was it. It really, I mean, that was a huge turning point for me. And that's when I started, like I said, drinking during the week, using it to cope. And it just progressed until I quit and started, like I said, feeling like it was becoming more physical than mental by the end. And you've just got to break the habit because when you're doing things like that, you're hanging around with other people who are drinking the same. Mm-hmm. We're like beacons. You can find us anywhere when you're big drinkers. Oh, yeah. You'll know immediately. You just have to stop and you have to find a new way to socialize. And actually, that's going to be one of our future episodes yeah. is going to be about that. I know. Um, so, but we've got to stop. We've been chatting for way too long. We have to save so, some for future episodes. We do. Because- we do. I almost told another story then, but I thought, no, I'm going to save that one. I'll save that for the next one. <laughs> Cheers, Steph. Bye, Kate. Thank you for listening. We really hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, we're just two women from opposite sides of the pond wanting to bring awareness around the negative effects of alcohol. We are not licensed therapists or doctors. If alcohol is causing any mental or physical health issues, please seek professional help. Please be sure to give us a follow so you don't miss future episodes. If you think our podcast could help someone you know, please be sure to share it. Also, leaving a five-star review will help The Sober Effect reach more people like you. The music for this show was produced and recorded by Pearl and Thumbelina Jim of the wonderful Charm Jar Music. More information can be found in our show notes.